Good morning. Um, so with with um, Bill out and Dale, not Dale, Doug is at a family Christmas, the Clayton family Christmas today, so I'm going to stumble through this this morning. <laughs> Very sorry. Um, so let's see. Announcements today. Um, I don't see it in here, but the, um, the Christmas dinner. Sunday after church, there will be a small music program 
if you are interested in doing anything in the music program, see Jared um, like yesterday. So <laughs> in the morning before the dinner. That'll be kind of like a just a smallish service. It won't be long. It'll be um, make you starve. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So our help board sign up. How many are coming? Um, the, um, tonight we will be having evening service, video series. Well, it's actually audio series starting at six. Bring finger foods, dish to pass, drinks, all that jazz. Um, keep praying for Ida. I have not gotten a phone call from Phil today. He's been calling me daily. He's I think he's calling tons of people daily. He does not sound like he's resting much. So long, alongside of Ida, pray for him. He's, he has it, just not as severe, we think, as um, Ida, because his test came back inconclusive when they tested him, which just means they just didn't get enough stuff on the little dipstick that they shove up there. Um, so in, in um, anything else that we need to go over? Missed, yes. Jim Morrissey for some years now, and his his mom posted um, this week that um, he thinks she thinks he's going to go home very soon to be with the Lord. Yes, yes. So many, but glad to see the Marshall. Family. Okay, so they'll be here. All right, scripture for meditation this morning is Psalm 101. It's page 937 in your um, in your Bibles.
forgot to announce this, but I'm hoping for a Christmas favorite hymn. This oh, Sheila, that was fast. <laughs> Sheila. <laughs> 148 in the brown. Hmm. Do you have a reason for this one this morning? <laughs> one of mine, too. 148 in the brown. Hmm. Thank you. 
Uh, scripture reading this morning is Genesis 25, verses 19 through 34, on page 38 in the Bible. Let's all stand. Genesis 25, 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armin of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And God granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her, in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when, when she bore them. Isaac um, was 60 years old when um, she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, when, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. We take the red hymnal and turn to 184, 184 in the red.
Genesis 25 is our text this morning. Last Lord's Day, we analyzed Abraham's marriage to Keturah in his old age. He's at about 35 years before his death. And we know her. Her name means sweet aroma. And it is used of a specially formulated incense that God prescribed for the worship of him by the Israelites. No one was to concoct this special incense for themselves because it was set apart for the worship of God alone. We learn that the aromatic smoke of the incense symbolized the prayers of God's people ascending into the heavens towards God so long as that incense burned. We commend Abraham that he married in the faith. Keturah bore Abraham six sons, each of whom became a great nation, thus fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that nations and kings would come from him. Abraham was 175 years old when he died, and his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him alongside of his deceased wife, Sarah, in the burial cave Abraham had purchased from the Hittites at the time of Sarah's death. We drew out five lessons of a well-lived life. Number one, death dissolves the marriage relationship, thus permitting remarriage so long as that remarriage is in the faith, and marry another believer. Secondly, God's enablement to live for him exceeds what we expect. Abraham was enabled to have a son, Isaac, but yes, he sired six or more sons. Think of that. Thirdly, we learn that godly ancestors are no guarantee of godly offspring. There was among those sons a son called Midian. And the Midianites became the avowed enemy of the Israelites. So no guarantees there. Number four, righteous actions predicated on God's word do not become obsolete. Isaac was the promised child carries on through his seed. And lastly, we learn that Jesus is the sweet aroma that wings our prayers to the throne of God for God's answers. He's the incense, the sweet aroma. Today's study contemplates the next generation to push towards the promised land. That generation of Isaac 
and Rebekah's offspring. And as we come today, let's ask for God's enablement. We thank you, Lord, for the truths of these Old Testament people. Their lives are living out the spiritual promises that you gave to the gave to their ancestors, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on down through the whole scenario. We look at these promises and if we can call ourselves, as Paul does, that we are the children of Abraham, these promises reach into the centuries and they come and sit at our doorstep as well as those people way, way back then. And so we thank you for that. They don't become obsolete just because of the uh, coming and going of time. The promise that God makes to his people carries with it perpetuity. On and on it goes until it's fulfilled. And we just praise you for that. You don't forget your word. You don't forget your promises. You keep them all. Thank you for those that are here today and we have some sick among us. So we pray for their healing and restoration. We miss them all. Pray that you will bless in the study of your word today as we look to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're looking today at the subject of Jacob and Esau. One thing that pops off the pages of these Old Testament saints is this problem of barrenness. Barrenness, a reoccurring problem with these people. When last we noted Isaac, we were told chapter 24, verse 67, he married Rebekah, so she became his wife, and he loved her. But, like Sarah before her, and Rachel, wife of Jacob, after her, so many more women, Samson's mother, wife of Manoah, Hannah, wife of Elkanah, mother of Samuel, Michael, Saul's daughter, David's wife, Elizabeth in the New Testament, mother of John the Baptist, and all the no-name women, Included in Job's lament concerning the wicked, where he says, They prey on the barren and the childless woman, and to the widow show no kindnesses. But God drags away the mighty by his power, though they become established. They have no assurance of life. He may let them rest in feelings of security. Hmm but his eyes are on their ways. Job 24, verse 21 and following. So here again with Rebecca, we learn is another woman who is childless. As noted with Sarah, when the Bible speaks of her being childless, the point being made is that she never had the capability to conceive. Even though Abraham was virile, up to the, including the conception of Ishmael. So we ask, what's going on here? Is God picking on the women? 
how come we have these lengthy rosters repeatedly describing barrenness among what we would normally consider fertile women capable of conceiving children? First, I would say that God's judgment cannot be, it cannot be dismissed in this matter. For example, when Michael, David's wife, observed him dancing before the ark of God and entering the city as he came, we read, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. And I will celebrate. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. 2 Samuel 6, verse 20 and following. So we have a text here in which Michael put a sleazy spin on David's sincere worship of God, and God judged Michael by making her barren all of her life. Again, what about the rift between Abraham and Abimelech? When Abimelech conscripted Sarah into his harem, he did so with every intention of making her one of his wives, not knowing she was already married. The deception was Abraham and Sarah's, but nonetheless the Bible records, then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his slave girls so they could have children again, for the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Genesis 20, verse 17 and 18. So you see, sometimes barrenness evidences God's judgment for some sin committed by an individual, as in the case of Michael, or by a nation, as in the case of Abimelech and the Philistines. But there is another and a more important consideration here, and that is that God's people are to acknowledge that children are not simply, nor even primarily, the result of procreative abilities, but are, as is proved by all these accounts of barrenness among God's people, the truth of King David's assessment, which was this. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from Him. Psalm 127, verse 3. 
And you see, that truth undergirds the history of our text. Because in Joshua 24, God told the assembled Israelites, I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river, and I led him throughout Canaan, and I gave him descendants. I gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob. I gave Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Joshua 24, verse 3 and 4. Notice, I gave Isaac. I gave Jacob. I gave Esau. Really? You mean God was behind and in all these conceptions and births? Yes, but even more remarkable is to recall that all their mothers to a woman were childless until God intervened. That brings us to the fact that two nations, two nations were in Rebekah's womb. The psalmist says, he, that is God, <clears throat> will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Let this be written for future generations. Yet created may praise the Lord. That's Psalm 102, <clears throat> verse 17 and 18. And what do we read in our text? Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, Rebekah, because she was barren. Solomon put it this way, the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. Proverbs 15, verse 8. Or again, just in verse 29 of the same Proverbs. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. So Isaac prays, and the result is his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Verse 21. And boy, is she pregnant. How so? Verse 32. The babies, plural, jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. I like that this family is a praying family. You see that? Every time they're confronted with something, oh, let's go talk to the Lord about this. This is strange. We'd like to know what's going on. And they go and they pray. So she went to inquire of the Lord. And Isaac prays, Rebecca prays, both pray. And both prayers have to do with the begetting of children. Isaac prays to have children. Rebecca prays to find out what's going on within me. In her own words, she says, what is happening to me? So this is unusual what's going on. What is so strange about Rebecca's pregnancy that she's puzzled by it? Verse 22. 
the babies jostled each other within her. Genesis is the book of beginnings and the book of firsts. And so this is very likely the account of the first twins to be born. Verse 24. And God did address Rebekah's concerns. Verse 23. Two nations, God said, two nations are in your womb and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Unheard of in Oriental cultures. Let me read it again. The older child will serve the younger. And what piqued Rebecca's curiosity about her pregnancy was the turmoil within her womb. Verse, verse 22. The babies jostled each other within her. The Hebrew word means to oppress, to crush, to crack to pieces, to bruise. Whoa. Can you believe this? This is a no-holds-barred brawl of fisticuffs within Rebecca's womb in which these two unborn sons are duking it out before either of them has seen the light of day. I can remember when my children were in the womb. Donna would grimace a bit. I would see it in her face. And I would inquire and she would answer, I just got kicked by the baby. Sometimes I could put my hand on her abdomen and feel the kicking through the skin. And while uncomfortable for Dee at times, this was nothing compared to what Rebecca was experiencing. The animosity between Jacob and Esau was already present in the womb. They were each trying to pummel the other into submission. There was no love loss between them. Each strove for the dominancy. Each intended to bruise or break or crack the other's skull. And the battlefield was the water world of their mother's womb. We all know about siblings who just, they don't get along. <laughs> they don't get along with one another. But this, this is really a first. The war has begun before birth, nor will it abate after birth. Look at verse 24 and following. When the time came, this is birthday, the firstborn was red in color, and his whole body was hairy like a garment, so they named him Esau. The name Esau means rough to the touch, hence hairy, a trait that would later play a vital role in Jacob's deception, you remember, to obtain the blessing. Later, Esau was given the name Edom, meaning red, not a reference to his red hair, but to the red stew, verse 30, that Jacob used to purchase Esau's birthright. 
The second born of these twins was Jacob. Maybe he came out seconds later, or maybe minutes later, but he's second. Verse 26 says, His brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. And so he was named Jacob. You know what Jacob's name means? It means to grab the heel. Duh. (laughs) That's what he was named. To grab the heel. But it is in its figurative meaning that the name Jacob is meant here. Namely, the deceiver, the heel catcher, the one that will trip you up. One of the things that amazes me as I watch football on TV is how many times a player is brought down simply by the opposition reaching out and grabbing his heel. They don't have to hit you way up high. They don't have to take you out in the middle of your body. They just have to catch your heel in the right way, and down you go. What's going on here? The heel grabber. Well, that's not a flattering, flattering title. We use similar expression when someone does us dirt through misrepresentation or trickery or when they don't play fair. Think of the girlfriend that breaks up with a boyfriend. She might exclaim, you're nothing but a heel. And I do not want to see you anymore. So heel has the connotation of you've done me dirt and I don't want to have anything to do with you. The heel is the part that touches the dirt first. Now from adolescence to adulthood we read in verse 27 the boys grew up. Well of course they grew up. We're told Esau became a skillful honor, a man of the open country. There was a family on the Discovery Channel that they highlighted some years back called the Brown Family. The show was the Alaskan Bush People, in which this family of seven children lived with their parents in the Alaskan wilderness, eking out a livelihood from the land. There was the child called Bear, who howled like a wolf, could run nearly as fast. When he catches a fish, he brings it into the boat, and he punches it to death to put it out of its misery. Snowbird is the daughter She can shoot a rifle more accurately than her brothers. Bam Bam, named after the cartoon, the Flintstones, built his cabin out of mud and moss, laid over upright poles. And this tells me that Ray Stevens' comical farce, two bar buddies who could take out a grizzly with a switch in the middle of the night can become a reality with some people. You know people like this. 
Well, Esau's like the brown family man. He's living in the woods. He's shooting deer with his bow. He's running like an antelope. He's howling like a wolf. He says he's a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Verse 27. No tents, no sleeping bags, no propane cook stove, no frozen dinners for him. Uh Uh-uh. He eats what he himself traps or kills. He drinks from the mountain streams. He fishes from the lakes. Verse 28 says he ate wild game. Yeah, that's appropriate. Wild game for a wild man. So Esau is a man's man. He's he's into guns and ammo and football and baseball and every other sport. And he likes fast cars and fast women, as we're going to find out later about his life. And in stark contrast, we have Jacob. The only way to put it with regard to Jacob, he was a mama's boy. The scripture says he was a quiet man. Verse 27. No romping in the woods for Jacob, but preferring to stay among the tents. Verse 27. He has no bow. He has no arrow. Instead, he has pots and pans. Hmm. He's not one to hunt for his meals, but to barter for those meals. He's not rough and tough. Brash and bold, he's gentle, he's unassuming. He's happy to live in the background while Esau hogs all the limelight. He knows how to cook and clean and make a house feel like a home. And if there are any animals in his life, it's the domesticated kind of sheep and goats. Whereas Esau is one who Boldly goes where no man has gone before. Jacob is content to live in a civilized world, close to relatives and friends, and not too far from the family homestead. In other words, one could hardly find two others more contrasted in appearance, in character, and in lifestyle than Esau and his brother Jacob. But instead of appreciating and in each of them and loving these boys as individuals, as unique characters, we observe that when the men, when the boys became men, Isaac and Rebekah divided their love between their sons. Verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for the wild game which Esau's hunting skills brought to the table. Rebekah loved Jacob because he was always home. He was a help to her in her chores. He was one to converse with, share dreams with, share ideas with. So the stage was set for pain, heartache, intrigue, and even planned murder because of this favoritism expressed by Isaac and Rebekah. 
And if I had to put the blame on just one thing that fractured this family and brought about the separation, the abandonment, the animosity, which became so prevalent in their lives, I would list this partiality of preferring one child over another as the culprit. And it's even more horrendous when we discover that the preference of Isaac and that of Rebekah alike found its root in their own personal desire to please themselves by favoring each son for what they themselves could reap from the relationship. Isaac, we are told, had a taste for wild game. And Rebecca loved stay-at-home Jacob, who was her companion as well as her son. Trouble in the family. Wow. That brings me to Mr. Calculating Deceiver versus Mr. Rash Foolhardy. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the open country famished, and he said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. Verse 34 calls it lentil stew kind of bean soup. Jacob, being the schemer he was, seized the opportunity to outwit his brother concerning the birthright advantage of the inheritance. What was the advantage of having a birthright in these Oriental families? The birthright involved three things. Number one, gave you the position of head over the family clan, directing the lives of the various members as the chief spokesperson and the chief guardian of the family. Usually it went to the oldest, right? Firstborn. But we got a wheeler dealer here, and he's working to get ahead of things. Secondly, the birthright gave a spiritual recipient of all the promises pertaining to the extended family. In Esau's case, the promises God made to Abraham and to his father Isaac. Salvation would come through to his family and to the nations through his seed. And that seed, as we know from the New Testament, was Christ. And number three, the blessing of the birthright meant that Esau got the lion's share of the estate. Just as Isaac had inherited Abraham's wealth, while Ishmael and Keturah's offspring were sent away with but gifts, however valuable those gifts might have been, It wasn't the estate. So Jacob made Esau swear to relinquish all of these legal rights before he dipped his ladle into the soup to feed Esau. And God says of Esau's cheap sellout, this is God's evaluation, so Esau 
despised his birthright. Wow. He sold his fortune for a bowl of bean soup. Think of it. And that attitude showed, verse 32. Look, he says, I'm about to die. What what good is the birthright to me? Do any of us really think that Esau was on the brink of death? So that he had to eat, and I got to eat right now, there and then. Without a moment's delay, I'm famished. The word famished is a Hebrew word, means weak or exhausted, yeah, but he's not dying. He was just unwilling to prepare his own supper, which would have taken a little more time. So he was rash and he was foolhardy. I'm hungry, I'm famished, eh, birthright, yeah, you can have Just give me some soup. He didn't think it through. He had no heart to think it through. Spiritual realities was not on his radar. Now there are some pungent lessons that challenge our lives and family relationships. Number one, God is in control of the world's population and sees to it that his people prevail. God's judgment on Abimelech's household, the closing of the women's wombs, thus preventing conception, demonstrates that the world's population is not simply the result of procreative human power. The barrenness of the women that I enlisted was calculated by God, not an anomaly characteristic of Jewish women. In other words, God opens wombs, God closes wombs, as he wills. It's obvious that God takes personal interest in the various people groups of the world. This being so, there's no such thing as population explosion, which needs to be controlled or stifled by men. This was and it is the premise of Planned Parenthood which was founded by Margaret Sanger to justify her own promiscuous lifestyle and to promote her genocidal philosophy of ridding the world of misfits. Her word, not mine. Who were the misfits? She just lists them. You don't have to guess. Blacks, immigrants, their human weeds, reckless breeders, spawning human beings who never should have been born, end quote. That's from her own book, Pivot of Civilization. She's referring to immigrants and to poor people. The American Eugenics Society member Clarence Cook Little 
was the president of Margaret Sanger's American Birth Control League, the ABCL, and at the same time, he was on this pro-euthanasia panel. Clarence Little was the president of the University of Michigan from 1925 to 1929, a founding member of the American Eugenics Society, a board member of the American Birth Control League, which would later be known as its new name, Planned Parenthood. I remember in my teen years discussing in the news by Planned Parenthood dealing with population control. Maybe you remember some of those too. And pressure was on couples to abstain from having children. And my point in all this is that evil men and their methods notwithstanding, God is in control of the world's population. And despite Sanger and her elite eugenic followers, the only master race that will prevail in this world will be God's people. We will prevail because God has promised Abraham, the father of us who believe, that his offspring will be as plentiful as the sand on the seashore and as the stars in the sky. Boy, that's going to make the world cringe. And John allows us to peek into the distant future when he describes this scene in heaven. Let me read it for you. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 7, verse 9 and following. Birth, brethren, but more importantly, rebirth is controlled. And then secondly, we learn that those who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Jacob and Esau demonstrate this spiritual principle taught by Jesus. Jesus' words are, There will be weeping there, and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Luke 13, verse 28 and following. 
Esau had all the promise of a man who could command the allegiance and the admiration of others. He was just like Eliab, son of Jesse, whom Samuel saw and reasoned, Oh, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me here. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. This was, this was a king to replace Saul. Oh, this, 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 this must be the guy. But it was the boy David who caught the eye of God. The Lord Samuel said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. I have rejected him, this Eliab. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Okay, what was it about Esau that God knew? Let me read it for you. Hebrews 12, verse 15 and 16. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that... No one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Hebrews 12, verse 15 and 16. So Esau, like so many macho men, had no time for God, no time for righteous and holy living. God knew this from the get-go. So oldest son of Isaac, notwithstanding, Esau was rejected. What's that? That's the first shall be last principle. We learn thirdly that every child in your family, every child in your family is unique in personality. And skilled in ability, part of God's inheritance. You tell you what, Isaac—he just couldn't see the value in Jacob. He couldn't see it, though he was the better man. And Rebecca could not see the value in Esau, though he worked hard to provide foodstuffs for the family. So the parents split their time and their affection between the two, and they yes, thus contributed to the jealousy and the animosity these two men developed towards each other. It's one thing for two babies in the womb to struggle against each other. That They're never going to remember that. But it's quite another to fertilize and feed that bitterness through Preferential treatment, especially with love and affection. Paul writes it this way, but in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, 
I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, then every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18 and following. So my point is, let's not devalue family members because they have different personalities or skills from us. We need each other. And they didn't see that, Rebecca and Isaac. And and Isaac did not see that with regard to their own children. Lesson number four. Don't settle for soup when you own the estate. Think about this. Don't settle for soup when you own the estate. Esau, in addition to his macho skills, was also plagued with the trait of many men, namely rash decisions. Decisions based on quick assumptions rooted in how one feels about this or that, not allowing enough of slow down to contemplate the outcome of such decisions. He was hungry. Okay. Famished. Okay, we'll give him that too. But so hungry that he flippantly sold his privileged position as the firstborn for a meal? He despised what he had. What did he have? The estate. He sold it for peanuts when it was worth millions. Years ago, I read a news account of a customer rummaging through a junk store. You know that show, called, I think they call it Pickers or something like that. But as he rummaged through the junk store, he came upon two photographs of Jesse James, the outlaw, which he purchased for $2 each. Turns out, they were worth millions. Millions. Because of their rarity. Now, obviously, the store owner devalued their worth. He was ignorant of their worth. Either case. But he sold his estate for peanuts. Just because he didn't know. That was Esau. Jesus, in describing the value of the kingdom of heaven, puts it this way. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he finds 
one of great value. He went away and he sold everything he had and he bought it. Matthew 13, verse 44, verse 45. This merchant saw immediately and appreciated the value of heaven and he wasn't about to let it slip away from his hands. Esau valued other things. And spiritual blessings were not valuable to him. They weren't as valuable as his immoral and decadent lifestyle. Jesus put it this way. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said... If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. These fools are part of our society everywhere. Paul writes it this way, as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave. Although, although he owns the estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. He also, when we were children... We were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now, because you are sons, I'm still reading scripture, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, meaning father. So, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Galatians 4. Verses 1 through 7. The point is this. Don't blow your spiritual inheritance on a bowl of soup. No matter how hungry you are for the diet that the world offers, see past the trap. Hold fast to what you have or what you can have in Christ. There's no comparison. Paul says that. What's coming 
don't even compare. The way we live now. So are you going to sell the incomparable for a bowl of bean soup? Well, I'm hungry. Yeah, but God will see that you won't starve. He'll take care of your needs. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus who has taught us right perspectives with regard to this world, which he taught is passing away. It has to pass away. It's just, it's material. It can't last forever. It's not eternal. But our souls are eternal. Where's my soul going to spend eternity? Where am I going to live for all of my life? In the fires and tortures of hell? Or in the glory and bliss of heaven where Jesus is his own personal dwelling? Lord, teach us to value things rightly. Esau sold out. He sold out. He gave away the kingdom for a bowl of soup. Keep us from such folly. Work in our hearts. Open our eyes to see. Plan for the future by deciding a right in our present world to love Christ with all our heart and soul and mind. To the praise and glory of of the grace of God, we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. From the Brown Hymnal. 
I like that hymn. We don't need any other plea. No other plea. Jesus died to die for me. And he died for you if you're in his faith. You're trusting him. The world comes along and says, you need this, you need that. You, need, you want to be happy, do this, do that. Go here, buy this, buy that. You know, it's all going to de- it's all destined to burn. I like this little church. But it's one day going to be a pile of ashes. Say, don't say that. This was built in 1840. <laughs> I have to say it. One day, it's going to be ashes. And there's a home waiting for us. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you so that where I am, you might be also. We have a song in the hymnal. There's a mansion over the hilltop. We like to sing that. I don't like to sing it because it's falling. Oh, I'm going to get a mansion. <laughs> if that's your great uh, push for going to heaven, I think your uh, I think your desires are gaining the, the better of you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the word is. There are many Monet, dwelling places, apartments in glory. Apartments? Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, think about this. Think of a mansion, but it belongs to the king. And the mansion has a lot of apartments. Why? So that his people can be right with That's better to think about than in some rugged place in the woods with my own private little mansion. I'm going to be with God in glory. And Paul tells us it's above what we could ask or think. So you can't even think it through what God has promised for his people, what he's provided for us. He doesn't want you to think it through. Why don't you just trust it by faith that it's going to be far better than anything you could imagine. I pray that all of you will be present there that day, whenever that day comes, whether it's through death or through the return of Jesus, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for the truth of the Word of God the promises you make to your people. They are yea and amen. That is to say, they are going to come true. When men break promises, God cannot break promises because the scripture says he cannot deny himself. That's something he can't do. He can't be unfaithful when his very essence is faithfulness. He can't be a liar when his very essence is truthfulness. 
Jesus said, I'm the way. I am the truth. I pray that we'll settle on some of these truths about our Savior. Especially as we come into the uh, Christmas season and we think about the birth of Christ and the coming of Christ and what he has accomplished for us. Thank you for the truth of the word of God. Feed our souls from the bread of heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are dismissed.